This is More in the Morning. Filling in for John Moore, here's special guest host, John Tory. It is time to uh, enjoy a test tube Thursday, uh, a visit with News Talk 1010 science expert Dan Riskin. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing well. I'm happy to say no tears on this side of the microphone so far this morning. No, but, when uh, you talk we'll about talk tears, I was making the point that, you know, uh, maybe it's men's aggressiveness that made a woman cry in the first place. But having said that, uh, you're on to a story here that says that sniffing women's tears makes men less aggressive, which may be a very good thing in view of what might have caused the tears to begin with. Yeah, you know what, this is a really interesting, th- th- uh, this is a great story, but it's also one that is a good cautionary tale about what we sort of go into these experiments thinking of and sort of the explanations we jump to. So what they've done in this experiment is they've found some people who are women who are really good at crying at movies and they collected buckets of tears out of these people while they watched some really sad movies. And then once they had the tears, that was one treatment that they were going to use for their experiment. For the other treatment, they got saline solution like tear water, but sterile, not from tears, but from a a chemical. Uh, And they poured it down the faces of the same people and then collected it at the bottom of the cheek so that it would have gone down the skin on the outside. So it wasn't still, it wasn't a tear, but it had gone down their face. And so it should be a good control. And then what they wanted to know was how do real tears or these fake saline tears, how did they influence the behavior of men? And so they took these uh, 31 different men and each Each man took a big whiff of one of these. They didn't know which one it was. And in fact, the person giving them the the treatment, uh, it was labeled in a way so they couldn't tell either. So the person takes a big sniff. Then they play this video game that's designed to measure aggression. And what they found is when, when the people who played the video game smelled real tears, their aggression in the video game went down 43% compared to when they were smelling the control substance, which is really amazing. And so there's very clearly a link between the smell of tears and a decrease in aggression, but everybody who's reporting on this and the the research article itself really makes this about the male female thing and the the fact is they only tested tears from a woman and the effects on a man and so they didn't do any tests to see if it works the other way they didn't do any tests to see if female tears make females less aggressive or if kids or or anything like that and so everybody's telling the story that it's about aggressive men being made less aggressive by the smell of female tears and that is what they set up in the experiment but to say that that's the the story is is misleading if you haven't checked to see whether it's also true that male tears make females less well, aggressive. wait a minute why, we why all know that men don't female? cry isn't that why they didn't test male tears because we know that well men maybe don't cry, maybe i mean it's harder it, it can be harder to get tears from some some men but i'll tell you i watched marley and me on a plane once and i didn't know how the movie was going to end and i was sobbing at the back of that plane they could have collected plenty of tears for me from that one so everybody cries and so uh i just think that this is being told is too much of a male female story and not enough of a human story i agree with that now uh speaking of men and women and uh, how our brain operates in different ways uh now we have a story about numbers and and some evidence that uh, the brain processes the numbers four and five five differently. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, so how does the brain handle numbers? I mean, 731 is a great number, but it's a little bit esoteric, right? It's a little bit something you can't quite get your head around. Two, I can, I know what two apples looks like, and I know what two cars looks like, and that's different from three. And what it, there's a, a new study that's trying to break down the difference between the way we handle those very small numbers and the way we handle bigger numbers and where the cutoff is. Because when you see one of something or two of something or three of something, even four, 
your brain sort of has a set of neurons that light up and say, yep, that's a four. And they, it, and it's got it and it's distinct from the three. Whereas when you get into higher numbers, it starts to estimate things. And so researchers have been trying to figure out where the cutoff is. And there's a new experiment where they had uh, 17 patients who were about to have brain surgery. And so their brains were already opened up and had all these electrodes in them. And so they were able to, whenever that's happening, they always do all these other psychological tests because they're like, well, you're already instrumented. Let's just ask you a bunch of questions. And so they had these, these patients look at different numbers of things and they tried to get at exactly where the cutoff is and they say according to the this new data that the, the cutoff is between four and five so four or fewer you have a, a basically a part of your brain that lights up for that number but if it's five or more then your brain is doing an, a little bit of estimation like it's saying eh, it's close to six it's close to four it's 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 five-ish oh it's seven-ish and so there's kind of two distinct processes working in your brain and it's just kind of neat to, to sort of see behind the veil and see what our brains are doing when we try to handle things like counting and the Speaking of brains handling things, uh, multitasking, something we all try to do, some are better than others, but uh, again, the science suggests that multitasking gets trickier and even more dangerous as we get older. Yeah, this was a, a cool article written by a, a psychologist out of Australia who's really trying to sort of bring attention to this idea of multitasking. And of course, the, the joke people like to make is that multitasking is even possible, right? I mean, people say, oh, I'm really good at multitasking, but you're not. You're always switching between two different things. And so, um, you know, if you're if you're talking on the phone and you're driving a car, you're 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 switching your attention back and forth between the road and the conversation. And you you are not able to do both things at the same time. It, it just is not possible for the brain but how quickly you can switch between things has to do with the the frontal cortex of the brain which sort of acts as the as the uh the the engineer is sending different stuff down different pathways saying okay hold on on the driving let's look at the phone call for a second okay back up back forget the phone call get back to the driving and the efficiency of that switcher is part of what makes it less or more safe when you're trying to multitask and so uh, what this article does is just to to get into the sort of how that changes over the life your your lifetime and they point out that little kids are very bad at multitasking if they're trying to count and carry an ice cream cone and walk down the sidewalk at the same time they're going to walk very very slowly exactly <laughs> they're really going to slow right down but the point they make is that as we get older as we get into those elderly years just walking becomes more of a thing to focus on because it becomes more dangerous tripping is a much bigger hazard and as that happens though that sort of that that center at the front of the brain that's navigating all the different demands uh, has more to deal with just within walking itself and that makes adding something like a phone call or adding some kind of distraction an even bigger deal and so uh, the, when you get into older ages sometimes that's where you need to just focus on walking and not be trying to do other stuff at the same time your ice cream cone example is very kind to older people where we normally they would say they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> so that's, that's, I guess they'd call that multitasking, walking and chewing gum at the same time. Exactly. Uh, so one of the things I'm sure we have to worry about as we look at going to Mars, uh, for example, and we've got moon missions starting up again as well, is the perfect meal to serve uh, to uh, long-term space travelers. What is that? Yeah, you know, this is uh, when we talk about going to space. We, you know, the first thing you think of is, well, do we have a rocket? Does it have enough seats? Does it? How do the, what do the seatbelts look like? But really, the fundamental challenge is the human body. The human body is not built to handle weightlessness. We do very, very badly. And every time we send somebody up for six months to go in the International Space Station, they come back and they're just a complete mess. And there are all kinds of different pieces of that story. But as we get farther and farther away, another challenge is going to be how the heck we feed people because you can't. Send 
send groceries up every week to a mission that's on its way to Mars. It's just not, you got to have the food with you. You got to either have something stored or you got to grow stuff. And so researchers have been trying to figure out sort of that magic solution of something you can grow that also will feed people. And so there's this latest paper that just came out where they basically made a very, uh, it's a plant-based diet, but it had soybeans, poppy seeds, barley, kale, peanuts, sweet potatoes, sunflower seeds. And what they're saying is these are all things you can grow in the space station. And if we add them together in just the right ratio, they're going to be great for astronauts. And in order to test whether their recipe was really good, they fed it to four people and those, one of them liked it. And the other three said, yeah, I guess I'd eat this for a week. So that's about where we're at on the food for astronauts. It's not looking good yet. We need to make some real progress on that front. Um, I don't know that I, it sounds like a nice salad for one meal for me, but I don't know that I would want to make That's that exactly what I was going to say. And I was going to say, Dan, could you get to work and perhaps report back another day on steak, uh, French fries, yeah, exactly. uh, chicken breasts, uh, fish, uh, shrimp? Uh, I don't know if we can grow shrimp up on the space station, but uh, they can probably do almost anything. Uh, science has proved that over time. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's let's see if we can grow some shrimp on the space station. Yeah, because I'd love to have that salad. The salad sounded very good, but not every, not every day. Exactly. That's too healthy if there is such a thing. Dan Riskin, <laughs> our science expert, thanks. Thanks very much. Always interesting. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too.